0: Welcome to Global Stage, a podcast highlighting academic and policy-oriented international research on democracy and human development. Global Stage is a production of the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. Welcome to a new edition of Global Stage, the podcast of the Kellogg Institute for International Studies at the University of Notre Dame. I'm your host, Bill Kackenmaster, and I'm delighted to be joined by today's guest, Deborah Javelin. Deborah Javelin is Associate Professor of Political Science at Notre Dame, a fellow at the Kellogg Institute. And she also holds fellowships at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies and the Nanovic Institute for European Studies. She's widely regarded as a leading expert on Russian politics, environmental politics, political behavior and social movements, survey research, and numerous other areas of research. Professor Javelin has published widely in political science, including in the American Political Science Review, Comparative Political Studies, Political Research Quarterly, and other prestigious outlets. She's the author of Protest and the Politics of Blame, the Russian Response to Unpaid Wages, which was published by the University of Michigan Press in 2003. And most recently, she's the author of After Violence, Russia's Beslan School Massacre and the Peace That Followed, which was published by Oxford University Press earlier this year, and which we have the pleasure of discussing today. Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bill. So I wanted to start by asking if you can give our listeners a brief overview of the book. What was the Beslan School Massacre? Why was it a significant event in Russian politics? And what motivated you to try to book about it?
1: Sure. The Beslan School Massacre was a horrific act of violence that occurred starting on September 1, 2004 in southern Russia in the Republic of North Ossetia in a little town called Beslan, population 30,000. It was the first day of school, which in Russia is something of a holiday where rituals surrounding the first day of school are kind of standardized throughout the country. So what that means is on the first day of school, you're going to have not just the usual school population, but you're going to have parents and grandparents and other visitors and you'll have preschoolers and babies. So on September 1, 2004 in Beslan, there were about 1,200 or so people at the school expecting joyous celebration and instead there was um, gunfire and chaos and confusion and it quickly became clear that terrorists had taken over the school and for the next 53 hours those people were herded into the school and kept under horrific conditions. They were denied food, denied water, denied even the ability to cry or, 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 or talk. The most able-bodied men, the dads who were there, were executed at the beginning of the ordeal and the event ended tragically with over three hundred and thirty people dead which was about one in every hundred residents of the town half of them children and the question driving the book is about the aftermath of that horrible event? What happens after violence, after s- such an event? What will people do? And I'm interested in that as a political scientist, because it's a very generalizable question. Unfortunately, there's violence throughout the world. And understanding what victims do when they've been violated like that is a, is a question we want to know the answer to. But it's all, it was also the very specific question that people asked about th- this case. It occurred in the North Caucasus, which is a known sort of hotspot, not just for, for violence, but also for a culture of vendetta and revenge. And so when it happened, journalists and other observers of the region and politicians and the victims themselves were all predicting that the aftermath would be retaliatory ethnic violence. The reason that that was predicted is that the victims were largely of one ethnic group. They were uh, Ossetians and, and largely Orthodox Christian. The perpetrators were largely English and Chechens. Other ethnicities too, but largely uh, Muslim. And the the... And this is a region where, uh, just to take you back in time, there had been two wars in neighboring Chechnya, and uh, the Ossetians and the English had historic rivalries, largely territorial. So it seemed logical to a lot of people that the Ossetians would want to take revenge. And I'm interested in that part of the story, but I'm really interested in the peaceful outcome. What actually happened was the largest... Or longest, I should say, sustained political activism in modern Russian history. We did not see retaliatory violence near. There might have been a few incidents, but not nearly at the scale that was anticipated. And what we did see, which was unanticipated, was peaceful political activism in a regime that a lot of people dub authoritarian or at least hybrid at the time. uh, Not a place where you would expect victims to take that kind of action.
0: That's that's fascinating. It seems like an incredibly unlikely case of activism when all of the conditions and all of the circumstances were incentivizing the exact opposite as you were discussing so what do you think motivated people to become activists when as you outline and explain in the book they had every reason to support violence
1: so the the book is is largely driven by that question and explores individual motivations. Um, and the question is what kind of characteristics, for example, might mobilize somebody to become? Violent. If there was, say, a violent entrepreneur or somebody, somebody who wanted to take advantage of the situation and try to rouse people to action violently, what kind of individual characteristics would enable somebody to follow? And then on the other side, uh, in terms of activism, the same kind of question, what individual Characteristics would be most uh, statistically significant if we're talking in the language of social science. Uh, meaning, which characteristics would be most meaningful in describing a potential activist? And there are many findings in the book, so you could tell me which ones interest you most. But I'll I'll tell you the the one that is one of the first chapters on the different characteristics that that go into explaining why politics and not violence. And that would be the emotion of anger. And I focus on that because so often when we think about um, violence begetting more violence, vi- by violence begetting more violence, we attribute motivations to an emotional state of anger. And in some ways, that means that we criticize feeling angry or being angry because we worry that it will fuel an already explosive situation. And what I find in my research is that you really can't tell much. From the emotion of anger, you cannot tell much about an outcome of retaliatory violence. An an angry person and a less angry person um, are equally likely or unlikely to support violence. Where anger seems to play this really critical role is in promoting peaceful political activism. And I've had a chance to really reflect on that finding. And to me, it, it makes sense in all sorts of cases where where we're trying to sustain activism. I actually think that activist leaders themselves try to understand what will it take to get people not just motivated for like a one-off political action, but to actually stay engaged and continue to, to be mobilized to persist until they see outcomes. And I think that sustaining anger is a valuable lesson to be learned from the Beslan victims. Sustaining anger is actually not that easy. And people, anger dissipates and people move on with their lives. And from an activist perspective, reminding them of injustices and, and other reasons why they should stay engaged works when people feel that anger. So I think anger is maybe a healthy civic mm. emotion. Um, and that's that's something that um, I, I argue for in, in the concluding chapters. I think the research speaks to that point.
0: Mm. That's that's absolutely fascinating. So anger, it sounds like, is is in a way it's emotional, but it's quite rational for these activists. It can be translated into a form of mobilization or a strategy. So the anger part is really interesting. What else did you find as um, drivers of political activism and not violence?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I also, maybe I should just also fill in the blank uh, because yeah. I realized that the part of the story that I didn't tell is why the victims should be angry in politics. So if you don't mind, I'll please, I'm yes, gonna, please. Uh, jump in with that you because it may without telling that part of the story it may seem unusual to feel anger and express it politically if this was a terrorist act and that's certainly what the russian government wanted us to believe that what could they do after all you know pe- terrorism happens and if the victims are angry at anyone it should be against the terrorists but the victims are angry because they saw the outcome of the hostage taking as government bungling so the there were some hostages who were killed by the terrorists and that was uh, recorded and people people witnessed it but the vast majority of the hostages who died died thanks to an explosion that happened on the school roof that set fire to the roof and then caved in and then there was um well it's not i should say it's not clear that they, they there've been investigations that the victims claim were designed to exonerate the government from any criticism when the victims believe that what what happened in the aftermath was due to the government they believe that their children essentially were killed by government forces who were more concerned about killing bad guys than they were about Rescuing hostages—that this this hostage rescue operation was really just a kill the bad guys at all cost operation—and Russia has done that before. And that was another criticism this was a time period when there had been other hostage takings, famously in a two thousand two incident in a Moscow theater. There was also um, a hostage taking in a nearby hospital. Um, there were apartment bombings. There have been uh, there had been a, a sequence of events, and they thought that the Russian government by this point should have some. More humane approaches to counterterrorism that involve, first and foremost, saving as many innocent lives as possible. And they don't believe that the Russian government did that. In fact, they believe that the Russian government caused more deaths than otherwise might have happened, and aimed at a cover-up um, so that they wouldn't be, uh, so that uh, their actions wouldn't be discovered. So, wouldn't you be angry? <laughs> right? I mean, so so yes, anger is is a, a rash like you said, that's a really good word for it. Anger is rational. It makes mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense to be mm-hmm. angry in such a situation and to stifle it and to to fear it rather than to think, okay, well, how can this anger be productively channeled? Mm-hmm. Um that would that's misguided in my opinion. Um and I think supported by the evidence. Right. So, you another your, your other question though is what else?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that's okay. so 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 it seems that anger is rational in the sense not only of activists uh, rational in terms of, of of being part of a rational activist strategy for sustaining mobilization and collective action, but also for identifying the targets of that political activism, not just the terrorists but also the government to hear. To sort of hear what you're you're saying, which is really interesting to me. So what else was surprising to you in terms of the findings?
1: Surprising. Let me see. Well, I'll go the flip side. So then the the question would be, if anger doesn't motivate somebody to behave violently, what does? Mm -hmm. Um, And some of the questions that we asked of our victims had to do with basic prejudice. They were very seemingly innocent questions about your Willingness to mix with ethnic others. These, these are questions that are used in the American General Social Survey um, and elsewhere uh, to measure uh, racial attitudes um, or, or or attitudes toward other ethnicities. And they would be things like, how would you feel if someone in your family wanted to marry someone of the other ethnicity? How would you feel if someone in your family invited someone home for dinner who was that other ethnicity? How would you feel about your kids going to school? Um you know in, in interethnic mingling in school, and those kind of questions are non emotional they're just very matter of fact how do you feel about how do you feel about um those kinds of interactions and those are better predictors mm-hmm. of whether somebody would support outright murder as retaliation for murder so it's not so innocuous and and I would point out that um these are very widespread feelings, right? Especially, say, intermarriage. Uh, often, inter, uh, being opposed to ethnic intermarriage seems defensible to a lot of people. Like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not racist. I'm not prejudiced. It's, it's just that I wouldn't want my daughter to marry one of those. But the the data from the Beslan victims shows that if we're going to see retaliation along ethnic lines f- from any sort of part of the human psyche. It has its, some of its origins anyway, any, if it has it anywhere, it's going to be in, these base, in this basic discomfort with mm-hmm. ethnic others that allows for dehumanization, which then allows you to say, yeah, uh, I'm comfortable seeing those people murdered.
0: Yeah. that's uh, Well, it's it's horrifying that people, I think, hold those views and then would support outright murder based on those views. Um, But one thing I think is um, so interesting about the book or so impressive about the book is how you were able to collect this information in the first place. So I wonder if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about your approach to gathering the data and the evidence that you used to reach these conclusions in the book and what was that process like?
1: Thank you for that, that great question. I didn't do it alone. That's the first thing. This, these kinds of projects require a, a team, a great team. And I was really fortunate to uh, work with a team of survey researchers in Russia who had extensive networks. And we talked a lot about who would be appropriate Interviewers for standardized survey questions, and then also appropriate as a moderator for focus groups, because this was a multi method study. So we had both, well, we also uh, used um, extensive newspaper reporting and NGO reports and invest, uh, official investigations and things like that. But for the interaction with the victims, we had to think very carefully about who on our team should be the ones asking the questions. Um, so the argument was that um, if you had local ossetians asking the questions that might not go over so well because a lot of the questions should be obvious to anyone who lives there so it would be looked upon like you if you're from our community why are you asking these obvious questions i as an american was uh, deemed an inappropriate person <laughs> maybe because it uh, just seemed too unclear to locals why would an american be asking such questions um also, unfortunately, there was even some conspiracy theories at the time that Americans might have been involved. It just would have added a layer of complexity that didn't need to be there. So mostly what we did was have experienced Russian interviewers and moderators who were not from North Ossetia, um, not from Beslan, who uh, went and, uh, and did the, uh, the on-the-ground work. The first trick was finding people. So you may think that it would be pretty obvious to know who was inside a school during a hostage taking, but even that was a contentious question. The Russian government uh, at the beginning of the of the siege wanted to downplay how bad it was. And so they kept suppressing the numbers and saying, first, it was like only a few hundred people are in the school. Later, we learn it's about 1,200. So. Then they had to collect evidence for who was killed, who was injured, who survived, and that became a contentious process too, particularly because um they did not cordon off the scene, so the forensics were horrible if non existent in some at some times but we did we did our homework and we compiled we we used existing lists of victims from many different sources and tried to combine them for overlap. And we eventually identified 1,340 people who we determined could be accurately labeled a victim of the Beslan School hostage taking. Um, And we labeled a victim as a surviving adult hostage, a parent Of an underage hostage or a next of kin of deceased hostage, so we had to think about that too, about who qualifies as a victim. Because in a town that small, you could argue that everyone's a victim, right? I mean, if it's just happening in your backyard, that seems particularly traumatizing. But we wanted a more a more specific, clear cut definition, so that when I present the results to you, there's no one who can challenge. Well, that person wasn't a victim. I mean, obviously they were. The other criteria. Was about underage children, anyone under the age of 18. This was emotionally traumatic. And we have to often think in survey research and in focus group interviews are we re traumatizing victims? For adults, we can talk about that because it's a complicated question. For children, it's just a clear cut you should not interview children they have fifty three they were in a school for fifty three hours they watched their peers be killed some of them are uh, maimed for life they just the argument was just do not go there and nobody disputed that it it does have research implications uh, for example a sixteen year old boy may retaliate violently or, or and will is eligible to participate politically. And so we just have to be clear about the limitations of the study, which are that we can't speak to anyone under the age of 18, that the results are just generalizable to adults. Um, and I'm comfortable with that limitation.
0: Right. I just want to... to- ask a little bit more about what shape the activism took concretely. What were the activists asking for? What were they pressing for? What did that movement look like? Was it an organization? Was it a smattering of protests? Just can you flesh that out a bit?
1: Yeah, sure. So I'll take it in two parts because we want to know what they're asking for and also then what they did essentially. The first thing they were asking for was just clarity on what happened, the truth. So one of the main activists was a wife and mother. Her husband was one of the ones who was killed. In fact, so, and by some accounts, he may have been the first hostage killed because he was trying to quiet everyone or help help out by asking the terrorists themselves to calm down because they were making everybody worked up and they, I guess they were firing weapons and he tried to bring calm to the situation. And for his efforts, they shot him in the head in front of his two sons. Enough people saw that happen where the surviving wife says, okay, I know my husband was killed by terrorists, but my two sons are dead too. And nobody saw a terrorist kill them. I don't believe that that's how it happened. So I want to know exactly what happened. I I need that kind of closure, and they did not believe the government account, which was just too flippant, too, you know, well, it was a terrorist attack, so everybody died because of the terrorists. So they want sort of the equivalent of our 9-11 commission, right? A a real accounting, um, and they themselves did a lot of that investigating. As a matter of fact, there was a dissenting member of the parliamentary commission that was investigating the hostage-taking and that that parliamentary commission's report was widely disputed by the hostages or or the victims or the survivors but there's this dissenting member who did his own report he was a, he was a weapons expert and they trusted him and he listened to them and a lot of the hostages reports all uh, reinforced each other. They sounded believable and they were contrary to the reports of government officials who weren't even there. So they, they want the government basically to admit its own actions, admit its culpability in what happened. There are other demands as well. For example, one is to have a law on the status of victims of a terrorist attack. And this is another concept that is not unique to Russia. It's difficult to understand how to codify in law what a victim of a terrorist act should be entitled to. But from their perspective, especially if it was government bungling, shouldn't the state take care of them afterwards? Because many of them have injuries for life. They're not going anywhere. You know, you don't, if if you're in a wheelchair, for example, you're in a wheelchair and you need the government to take care of you for life. And then especially if you think that the government is the source of you being in a the wheelchair, they should really take care of you for life. The amount that the government paid for each deceased victim was something like $3,500 worth of rubles. And then they tossed them a little bit more for funeral expenses. And it was insulting, right? It was just, it seemed like such a horrible, devastating thing to happen to your family. And then the government's just tossing you a few bucks and hoping that you will go away. So they also wanted the government to be kinder. And instead, what the government did is harass them. Harass, the, the government harassed the victim activists, the their attorney, who eventually needed to quit um, because his life was threatened and uh, the government harassed the journalists who were nobly covering the activism. And and, uh, I salute them and am so appreciative of their efforts because it's how a lot of us know these very specific details. It's the activists who go and do the activism and uncover the evidence. And then it's the journalists who amplify their efforts by putting it in print so that's that's some of what they wanted um how they organized very shortly after the hostage taking as a matter of, almost immediately, there were spontaneous protests. This is a small town, and when I asked a lot of uh, some of the questions asked sort of like how did this happen?" Some of the victims didn't even really understand the question because, from their perspective, if somebody asked you to go, you go. You know, and and they don't. It's like a game of telephone in a very tightly knit community. So, getting a hundred, two hundred, even a thousand people out to protest in a town of only thirty thousand, from their perspective, was logical. Like everybody goes to the weddings, everybody goes goes to the funerals. Unfortunately, so some of it was spontaneous, but I think that sometimes they didn't even give themselves enough credit for their own. Organization because it was so impressive. So the mothers, in particular, formed an organization called the Mothers of Beslan, and that organization did a lot of the the multifaceted approach to activism, which was not just to hold the protests, the standard kind where you stand in front of a building with picket signs, um, but they had uh, creative ways. Of drawing attention to their cause, um, and they they had they set up not only their organization but a website with like constant feeds of information, uh, both for the victim community but also for the outside world. They blockaded a highway. That was a really interesting thing to do until they could get Putin's special envoy to meet with them. They uh, had they went on hunger strikes. They staged courtroom sit-ins. Um, but it wasn't just mothers of Beslan. Uh, what's interesting hear from a, the perspective of people who study social movements is that there were disagreements within the activist community. And some of the most active women eventually split. So a second organization called Voice of Beslan came into being. And the kind of things that they disagreed over were strategy and tactics, where Voice of Beslan ended up becoming the more you could say extreme organization. I'm not sure I favor that word so much because it sounds like something that the the government could use to to harass them and even take legal action, and which the government did, but they were more willing to go out on a limb and call out President Putin for his role, whereas the mothers of Beslan wanted to take a more sort of insider approach and try to work with Putin. The voice of Beslan Uh, Women were the ones who uh, went on the hunger strikes and also staged a courtroom sit-in, which was really fascinating. There was a single surviving hostage taker named Norpasha Kulayev. 31 of the terrorists were shot. And, and killed. But Norpasha Kulaev was captured and he was tried. And so going to his trial was a form of activism in itself, right? All of these victims going there holding signs not just against the terrorists, but again, against using it as a forum to protest against the government. Um but the victims did not feel that their Voices were being taken seriously. They thought that the trial against Norpasha Kulaev was a bit of a circus to show, aha, look at us, we got the bad guy and we're going to convict him. And so during that trial, they staged a courtroom sit-in. They There were times when they themselves did some damage to the courtroom, that kind of thing. And those activists were principally from the voice of Beslan, not the Mothers of Beslan. The other place where they had a disagreement was in the participation of male victims. So Mothers of Beslan is called Mothers of Beslan. Men did participate in the activities organized by Mothers of Beslan. For example, if they said, "Hey, we're going to have a rally. We're going to have a protest. Would you please come?" Or, or sometimes it wasn't even, "Would you please come? We're having a protest." Just men, please come. Um, And the men would show up. But the voice of Beslan activists thought that there was a, a, a bigger role for men. They particularly were cognizant of the um, lesser status accorded to women in both North Ossetian society and the larger Russian society. And they thought that the male victims could be helpful there, right, in making them be taken more seriously. And the mothers of Beslan, I guess, just, you know, their mission, their idea of their organization was just different. In my view, as an outsider, um, I do understand that there were sometimes hard feelings between the people in these organizations. But again, I commend them all for their activism. And I think that they worked together when they needed to, they came together. Um, there were times when they were certainly uh, in conflict, but it's completely understandable. They all suffered so greatly and they often suffered in different ways. Mothers of Beslan tended to be the, the surviving parents of children who were killed. That's true for many of the voices, of, most of the voice of Beslan activists as well. But some of the hard hard feelings and difficulties in the activist community and in the victim community more largely was for the parents whose children survived, but still needed a great deal of assistance. And they weren't sure where to get it. And they often asked the activists, please do something on behalf of my child. And the activists, from their perspective, were like, I lost my child. you're You're asking too much of me. i'm I'm trying to get to the truth, the bottom of uh, the, the 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 truth for what happened to my child and why my child is dead. Lucky you, you have a living child, um, and you're going to ask me to give some of my time to that activism. I just don't have the bandwidth. but you could also appreciate the perspective of the parents whose children were living and maybe needed constant care. so they didn't have the time in their minds for activism. Either and just wanted their fellow survivors to be supportive, and so it, it made for the the chapter on th- these discussions. It made for a very interesting discussion, and the victims themselves wanted to talk about these difficulties more than almost any other subject. But it didn't. It didn't necessarily have sort of a uh, social science finding so much as just pointing out the the the, the real difficulties for v- victims to organize after this kind of activism, uh, after this kind of horrific incident.
0: Yeah. Well, I I mean, there's so much there in your comments that I want to unpack. And I have a million questions for you based on that. One is, um, there's so many great stories in the book. And one of the stories that um, I've heard you tell before related to this idea of gender is the different roles that men and women played and how some of the men thought that one thing they could do was to try to unpack the forensics of Beslan. So they all packed in this truck and then said, well, there's no way you could have fit that many terrorists in this truck. So the government report of what happened at Beslan is inaccurate. And so I was just wondering, what is what were some of the different roles that men and women played first?
1: Yes, because that, that is, I found that particularly fascinating as well, because so many of the photos that you might see in newspapers and elsewhere of the victims Uh, focus on the women, particularly women in mourning clothing, holding photos of their deceased children. And it makes for compelling imagery and bringing attention to their cause. And I think that the men and women knew that. I think that there's tremendous traditions of gender dynamics in the North Caucasus and in Russia as a whole. And rather than fight against them, what the victims seem to do is to say, okay, we all want the truth. What what's your lane? What's my lane? For better or for worse, right? But the incident that you described was one that was better suited for the male victims. And the story goes like this. The Russian government claimed that there were only 32 terrorists. Why would they claim that? It's very self-serving. If if you've killed 31 and you bury 31 terrorists and you have one that you're trying and, and then you convict, job over. D- you know, look, Pat ourselves on the back. We've done it. We've fought terrorism. This was a successful counter-terrorist operation. The Russian government is tough, competent. We did what we were supposed to do. Well, the victims, there's you know, around 1,200 of them in the building. They had 53 hours to count terrorists. <laughs> I don't think I saw a single report of a victim saying, we agree with the government that there were only mm-hmm. 32 terrorists. And it defies logic too, to imagine that 32 people who need to sleep are going to somehow be able to control Twelve hundred or so people in a big building. So that part of the story, of the government's story, really irks the victims. They they just cannot stand to hear that number thirty two repeated to them. So what could you do? You could you could say, as they did, you could say, "We were all there, and you're wrong. You weren't there. We've counted terrorists." I can. One of them said, "I can name them," (laughs) because they even heard their names. (laughs) But another thing you could do is say, "Okay, well, the government. Here's the government." narrative of how those 32 terrorists supposedly got into a school in the first place. Let's look at what they're saying and try to recreate the incident. So what the government said is there was a terrorist camp in Ingushetia, which is the republic that is next to North Ossetia. And what happened was those 32 terrorists plus a huge amount of weapons got, got into a GAZ-66 military vehicle drove from the terrorist camp in Ingushetia to the town of Beslan, where they got out with all their weapons and seized the school. And the North Ossetian men, the residents of Beslan said, well, okay, a Gaz 66 military vehicle. I've been in one of those vehicles before. I've served in the military. And I can tell you that it can't carry that much weight. As a matter of fact, I myself went to Wikipedia just to look up (laughs) this vehicle. And then you think about what an average man weighs. And they're absolutely right. I've never served in the military and it's just it, you just do a quick quick math from what they tell you about the vehicle um, and it doesn't make sense. But the men wanted to prove the absurdity of it even further, so they got such a vehicle and then they tried to find they, they found 32 men and I would even say boys because what they were trying to do again was show the absurdity of it. So they got boys who were skinny skinny as they pointed pointed out and they put them in this vehicle And there was, first of all, no room for weapons after that. They were just packed in there like sardines. That's their words as well. And then they tried to get the vehicle to move. And it barely would budge. And so there's just absolutely no way that the government story makes sense that this vehicle would have made it all the way into the school. And then also, then where did all the weapons come from? And this is the kind of thing that the male victims felt very comfortable doing. This was their form of activism, not the only form. I mean, they also, when the victims met with President Putin, for example, there were male victims present too. And that that was helpful because another time when he met with victims, uh, he was condescending he did things like he he tried to say to some of the female victims there's no way that the government could have used flamethrowers because the f- the the weapon would not have ignited if it was shot inside the building or something that sounded really far fetched and the women were like Vladimir Vladimirovich we have researched weapons we kind of Know what they can and can't do, you know we're not dumb um moreover, we went back to the scene and found shell casings and guess what? They had like government numbers on them. These are your weapons, but in that context, they were unwilling to be disrespectful, so they're being treated disrespectfully they're being treated as as morons essentially like or or at least um as pushovers in the sense that that he could say anything he wanted and not expect them to push back and that made it was a little harder to do when you've got the male victims mm-hmm. present and so in that sense maybe gender roles was uh, used to the best possibilities um and just thinking what could each type of victim do as an activist
0: mm, to operate kind of within the the norms of russian society at that time yeah um well so let me uh, let's let's uh, pull on this thread of putin if i may because it seems like an important part of the book and one that is a real change from 2004 to now um so so now i mean i think there's there's increasing awareness not only here, but around the world, that Putin is a, an authoritarian personality. But here in your book, he's at least listening to victims um, and 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 giving space for activism in civil society. So, can you just describe the differences and and maybe why they're important in Russia under Putin in two thousand four compared to Russia under Putin today?
1: I can try. Okay, I <laughs> will try. I would say that Putin had a uh, more permissive. Approach to civil society in 2004, particularly when it didn't threaten his continuation as president. I did other work apart from this book on civil society activism in many aspects of civic life where, yeah, he was a supporter and he did want to, you know, make sure that streetlights function and that schools are, you know, those kinds of things that don't necessarily threaten his continuation as, as president. And even with the Beslan victims, they were pretty sympathetic, right? You, you, it's it's a little hard to be completely dismissive of mothers who've lost children, but I wouldn't want to overstate how gracious he was to them. They were harassed. They were harassed even back in two thousand four when they were, or maybe two thousand five. I'm forgetting which year, but when they were having their hunger strikes, the phone lines were turned off to their to the Voice of Beslan offices, and one of the women. Um, after being on a hunger strike, her blood pressure shot high, and they needed an emergency vehicle, and the hospital was like five minutes from their main offices, and it took something like 25 minutes to get there. And that's not exactly aggressive harassment, but it's passive harassment. It's it's just letting your victims know that we're not looking out for you. And as I mentioned before, their lawyer, their their attorney, was harassed to the point of thinking he needed to step away, and that's a very big deal. And the victims themselves were harassed often used by being sued, by, by being taken to court for, in one instance, using a, a road sign that said "Course Putina, which means Putin's course. The victims held this sign and had it point to the school, which was essentially challenging the leadership and saying, this outcome is on you. This came from your behavior, and um, Ella Kasayeva, uh, the leader of Voice of Beslan, was taken to court and charged with improper use of a road sign, which is, <laughs> which uh, you know, sounds comical, but but it kept her busy, right? I mean, instead of doing her activism, what does she have to do? She has to defend herself in court, and that was not the only time that she had to defend herself in court. So it was not easy to be an activist, even in 2004, um, which then goes to show you how much more difficult it must be today, which is why when people say, well, why aren't Russians who are, say, opposed to the war in Ukraine, why aren't they doing anything? Why aren't they being activists? I would challenge people who said that to ask themselves how often they buck their government, even here in a democracy where the stakes are pretty low and nothing bad is gonna really happen to you. If it was that hard for activism in 2004, imagine what it must be in the year 2023. Mm -hmm. Not to excuse Russians who are pro-war, at all. But the ones who are anti-war f- do face very difficult considerations.
0: Difficult considerations and, and, and just practical obstacles to activism in front of them, it sounds like. And, and as you mentioned, the stakes are just incredibly high for this activism. And one high stakes arena that you uh, kind of outline in the book is the European Court of Human Rights. So I, I wonder if you could just tell our listeners the story of the activists and their case before the European Court of Human
1: Rights. Yeah, thank you. So the in their pursuit of the truth, the victims went through so many different Russian courts trying to push the government for a, a full accounting. And it, they took their case all the way through the Russian Supreme Court, the Russian Constitutional Court, and kept getting rejected, um, which just goes to show you the tenacity of these amazing victims. Because this is a multi-year effort. This is an uh, with constant uh, failure and disappointment. And yet they kept at it with their eye on the European Court of Human Rights for the entire time, I would argue. I mean, they, they did not necessarily expect good treatment in their own country, but they were willing to give it a go. And then when they got to the European Court of Human Rights, they won their case. Um, and so it's a landmark case for what a government's obligation is during a terrorist attack. So this is little known, maybe outside of Russia. Actually, I wonder if it's even known inside Russia, but I'm... I'm Happy to, again, amplify this message that this is a, a law that's out there, at least in in the European Court of Human Rights, which says that, no, the government doesn't have a right to kill innocent hostages in the name of getting terrorism, uh, getting uh, killing terrorists. The government's obligation, first and foremost, is the preservation of human life. And so using incendiary weapons is not an option. Those are what we call indiscriminate weapons, right? Like if those are not the kind of weapons where you can target the terrorists and not accidentally kill a hostage. If you could accidentally kill a hostage, you ought not to use that weapon. As a matter of fact, the Russian government had previously even signed on to international agreements not to use such weapons. So given that, you might say, oh, well, what good is that outcome if the russian government already agreed not to use those weapons and it 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 does it it did use them anyway maybe this is just an empty victory a hollow victory and that's certainly something that the victims themselves contemplate like i don't want to oversell these kinds of of outcomes um it's not like the russian government now goes oh oh sorry we didn't know we weren't supposed to use weapons we won't do it next time but at the same time i think it's still it, it's it's good to have that have this example of persistent activists forcing their government to uh to be accountable at least on the world stage to to have this verdict seen and the Russian government did pay by the way so it's not as if they uh they don't play by any of the rules internationally there's some rules that for some reason they want to play by and one of them is that even after th- when they appealed and they lost their appeal they by 2019 they paid those victims, they the, whatever the European Court of Human Rights awarded.
0: That's that's fascinating, at least as an institutional victory, as you say. So I mean, maybe some things on the ground haven't changed, but they did win this institutional victory, which just seems like an incredible victory given the uphill battle that these activists were were fighting. Well, so I, I think we're sort of coming to a close here. So I have two quick questions. What is the conclusion of all of this? And what is your main takeaway? What is your main message of the book? And importantly, what would you say to the victims and activists?
1: Yeah, thank you. There, there are two ways to answer that. One is the scholarly way, which is to, to go back to the research question for what is it that might make a victim of violence more inclined to retaliate violently? And what is it that makes a victim of violence more inclined to participate in Peaceful activism, and I hope that scholars of, say, ethnic violence or scholars of social movements and political participation would read the book for those findings, because I I, again I think that they can inform other uh, situations of violence. But then, if we're just talking about the specific case of the Beslan school hostage taking, I guess my concluding thought on that is gratitude toward the victims uh, and admiration. So. Most people don't know where the North Caucasus are, let alone North Ossetia, right? If you ask them to to find it on a map, they probably could not. Usually we would I would be lamenting the state of education or the state of, you know, Americans' knowledge of geography. But in this particular case, the reason you don't know where that is is because there's no hotspot, right? I mean, people probably can find Israel-Palestine or India-Pakistan or think about, you know, other global hotspots. Why can we find them? Because we're worried about what's happening there. We're worried about mass killings. So if we're not worried about mass killings and, you know, uh, uh, atrocities committed b- from by one ethnic group against another in the North Caucasus today, we can express gratitude and appreciation to the victims for that outcome, the fact that they took their tragedy and figured out a peaceful political way to address their concerns is a gift that they gave to, to humanity, that, that, uh, that we, can, we can go about our lives not worried about another hotspot. I do think that in return, we probably should give them a gift, which is to, to remember. Um, and uh, we had talked earlier about a little bit about ethics and 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 research. And I think that one of the ethical things that you could do as a researcher is to keep somebody's story alive. Um, so if you have gone through the trouble of uh, it, taking somebody's story, asking for their voice, recording it, the least you can do is remember that their pain is still there, that, that it may be old news for you. The news cycle has uh, gone on. But for them, that pain will always be there. And by talking about what happened and also the aftermath, particularly because there are issues that are still unresolved, like a full accounting for what happened, then I think that that is something that they have more than earned.
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, that's a a great note to end on. But before that, I wanted to ask, is there anything I didn't ask that you want me to ask? I don't think so. Do you have no unanswered questions or anything lingering on your mind? I
1: think you did a great job. Okay.
0: Well, on that note, I have to say, unfortunately, our episode's coming to a close, but this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. The book is called After Violence, Russia's Baslan School Massacre and the Peace That Followed, and the author is Deborah Javelin. So listeners, make sure you go pick up a copy anywhere that good books are sold. Thank you so much, Deborah, for the book and for taking the time to talk about it with us today. Thanks also to you, our listeners. Stay tuned for the next edition of the Global News Podcast from the Kellogg Institute for International Studies at the University of Notre Dame. Listening to Global Stage, produced by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies. Listen to other episodes here or wherever you get your podcasts. Global Stage also can be found online at kellogg.nd.edu or by asking your smart speaker to play Global Stage.